This is Market Currents from Northern Trust, where we explore facts, patterns, and expert opinions to answer today's most difficult market questions. Hi, this is Katie Nixon, Chief Investment Officer of Wealth Management at Northern Trust, and we are here today to get the latest on the COVID pandemic. So vax requirements, third jabs, variants, and waves, we are still very much in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, and it seems like the deluge of information, sometimes conflicting, is still creating some anxiety, to say the least. This is when we bring in the experts to help us sort it out and make sense out of this challenging situation. I'm so pleased to welcome Eric Nowensi. Eric is our senior healthcare analyst on the fundamental equity team here at Northern Trust, He's been absolutely instrumental in helping us and our clients navigate through the COVID crisis really from the very beginning. Eric has a PhD from Johns Hopkins Medical School, so he brings a lot of needed expertise to the table. Eric, I want to thank you for joining us, and I look forward to your perspective on what is such an important issue for everyone, of course, but it's increasingly top of mind for investors. The prospect of getting back to normal kind of felt like an attainable goal just a couple of months ago. But with the latest surge of the Delta variant really around the world, the timetable seems to be getting longer and longer. So maybe I can turn it to you first to just give us a bit of a lay of the land. Where are we in this COVID journey here in the U.S.? And are there any hot spots around the world today? Thanks, Katie. Uh, glad to be with you. So let me take your question in reverse order, if you don't mind, and I'll start outside of the U.S. And uh, so we've been tracking cases in 50 countries globally. And I'll focus in on three countries for a minute, Israel, UK, and Spain. And all of those countries have high vaccination rates, and they're in the top 10 of the 50 that we monitor. And the fully, va- the fully va- vaccinated rates there range from 64 to 78%. And what's interesting is that despite having high vaccination rates, you see very high variation in infection rates. So we look at the number of cases per million population per day. And Spain right now is at about 50, which is uh, pretty low. Israel uh, just a week ago was above 1,000, which is extremely high. And so there's more than a tenfold difference in infection rates between those two countries. And then the UK is somewhere in the middle at about 500. So in terms of trends, Spain continues to improve directionally. Israel is dropping from very high rates, and the UK is wobbling back and forth, and it's unclear if it's peaking or plateauing there. So the reason we look at those countries is because we view them as an indicator of what we could expect in the U.S. as our vaccination rates improve. And the fully vaccinated rate in the U.S. is 55%, and again, that's below the range for those three countries of 64 to 78%. So it could take us another two months Uh, So to maybe the end of November for the U.S. to get to the bottom end of that range, let's call it 65 to 70 percent vaccinated. So right now, the national daily case rate uh, is about 350 per million per day in the U.S., and it's declining from what was about 500 just a week ago. And so just to give you a point of reference, we have always looked at 250 as kind of a red line for many states. So if you're above that, then many states like Illinois, for example, are going to have indoor mask mandates at the very least. So right now, COVID in the U.S. is very broad. About 45 states are above that 250 red zone line. But for the past several weeks, there's been a large dichotomy between the southern and northern states. Uh, some might categorize them as the red, red states with the low vaccination rates or the blue states with the higher vaccination rates. 
And many of the red states recently peaked at very high levels. Many were above 1,000. And those are now dropping rapidly and are close to that 250 red zone line. And on the other hand, the blue states, which have the higher vaccination rates, are gradually climbing or were, were gradually climbing. And many of those are also at about 250 uh, around that line today. So if you put all that information together, uh, unfortunately, it actually makes the modeling more challenging, not less. And I hear many epidemiologists and, and modelers saying the same thing right now. So on a national basis, because the U.S. is a couple of months behind those three countries in vaccination rates, near term, it might be over-optimistic to, ex uh, over -optimistic, uh, to expect a rapid decline uh, of, of case rates in the U.S. And add to that that there's very high dispersion in case rates in those three countries, which means that you can't really extrapolate from average trends there. So I do uh, get the sense that there is growing consensus that the U.S., has peaked and is headed down. And I think that's true in those low, vax, uh, low vaccination red states, but it's too soon to say, I think, in the high vaccination blue states. So it's possible that nationally, we don't see a decline as rapidly as many, uh, as rapidly as many are hoping for. Uh, you asked about hotspots worldwide. And um, so of those 50 countries that we track, uh, turns out Israel, UK, and the US are in the top five for cases, although, uh, many of the uh, smaller countries are likely underreporting cases, so it's unclear if that's apples to apples. But if you look at mortality, Israel and the UK are lower in mortality because of their high vaccination rates. So the vaccines are working to protect uh, from severe disease. And outside of those, it's it's mostly a variety of smaller countries that are hotspots in terms of countries that are highly populated or strategically or economically important. Currently, Russia has a high mortality rate, and then I would note that Singapore. Uh, the cases there have really accelerated just recently um, after they had been you know, kind of a model country for, for using public health measures. They seem to be having an outbreak right now. So those are two countries that I would highlight. Hey, Eric, what is the um, vaccination rate in Singapore? I think it's quite high. I don't, I don't remember for a fact, but I believe it's in the top 10 of the 50 countries that we monitor. I mean, that's why I think this is so confusing for people. And I'll, I'll just take Israel as an example of a, a country that in the early days of the of the, the vaccine rollout, it was widely thought that Israel was a country that got it right. They rolled out vaccines and got very wide adoption, very quick and, and broad adoption. But then, as you noted, they have seen a Delta spike as well and cases remain pretty high. What is there any way to explain that? Yeah, so Israel is um, it's an interesting case. And first of all, um, Singapore, I, I know that they're having a high increase in case rates, but I don't know that it's you know one of the highest in the world right now. So it's, it's from a very low level. So that's one thing to note about the, the Singapore case. In, in the case of Israel, you know, in general, it, it can be very difficult to tease out the factors that shape the case curves in various geographies. Uh, sometimes there can be um, strong factors that you can be reasonably sure are having an impact, and sometimes there are weak factors. But there can be a combination of weak, weak factors that amplify each other, and those are hard to tease out. The, the bottom line for Israel, and I, and I know because I spent some time looking at this, is I don't think that there's a proven or widely accepted reason for why they had such high case rates. I think it's mainly conjecture, but from what I've read, and you know, I can think of also several potential reasons, it 
could be related to their reopening rate. So they reopened their economy because they had the high vaccination rate. Um, they also have a high population density that could contribute. It could also be one factor that they're just recording more cases because they have put more resources into testing. They've been very good about testing. So that, that it could be kind of an artifact. And there could also be calendar reasons. So in September, the schools reopened, but in Israel, it's also a time of holidays and family gatherings. So that's a combination that could amplify cases. Uh, and a lot of the cases that we're seeing there are in the unvaccinated, including children. You know, I get I, I, in a way, the good news is, is that the, vac- the vaccines appear to be working there to protect the vaccinated, both from infections and severe disease. So hopefully Israel is more of an outlier in their high case numbers uh, for some of those reasons. So as you noted, sort of different countries have taken different tacks here, not not just on the vaccines, but also on mitigation strategies, you know, social distancing, mask wearing and and the like with varying uh, degrees of success. uh, We have avoided uh, uh, in in most areas those draconian lockdowns that we experienced sort of in, in March and April of 2020. There's one country that has continued to go through a series of lockdowns, and that's China, Um, Can you talk to us about what's going on in China and and, uh, the COVID situation there? Sure. So so what do we know about China? You know, it's an area that I frankly haven't spent a lot of time on because it's hard to know how reliable the numbers are. But of course, it's an extremely important area. So we follow what we can. And, you know, as you say, they seem to have had rolling lockdowns. Some people look at the airline data from China. And in August, there was a significant drop in activity, and that has partially rebounded. But the airline departure data still shows that they are down 35% from pre-COVID levels. Um, in terms of vaccinations, and according to the website Our World in Data, their fully vaccinated rate is 71%. So that's actually quite high compared that to the U.S. at 55%. But again, it's hard to know how reliable that number is. And in terms of the vaccine efficacy, we also don't have very reliable data. China has claimed 70% efficacy from their vaccines in terms of protection from infections and 100% against severe disease. But other countries that are using the the China vaccines have reported efficacy more in the 55 to 70% range for infections. And Chile reported uh, something on the order of 80% protection from mortality. So Our assumption is that the Chinese vaccines do have lower efficacy than that for major Western vaccines. One of my concerns about China is that they never had a wide spread of COVID naturally. So they might indeed have a high vaccination rate, but they don't have the buffer of naturally protected people that most other countries have. And it seems that they have a weaker vaccine. So because of that, they might have a harder time on the other side of the pandemic if countries, if other countries are starting to, to reopen, China may still be restricted in their activity levels for a longer period of time. Now, it's interesting you mentioned, you know, travel sort of coming back. And you mentioned Singapore and, you know, Singapore, despite the fact that they're having this real, real spike in cases, they're reopening their borders. We're hearing about European restrictions um, coming down. Are you concerned that the relaxation of all these travel restrictions around the world is going to maybe provide an environment not only for the Delta to spread, but also potentially for more variants to emerge? 
So I don't think that uh, travel by itself is a major concern. So from listening to the epidemiologists, the largest contributor to variants is the level of community transmission. Giving the, the virus the opportunity to evolve on a local basis is, is the biggest factor. So, um, and the biggest factors affecting community transmission are vaccination rates, social distancing, and masking. So I don't think travel per se is a major, is a major factor and, and, you know, because there's a lot of data suggesting that there is not high transmission on airplanes. But what matters more, I think, is what people are doing in the destinations where, where they go. So, and almost uh, most countries do require vaccinations to enter anyhow. You know, it's interesting that Delta, the Delta variant may have come from a, a small village in India and spread around the world. That's pretty impressive to, to think about. And that was at a time when there was still a fair amount of travel restrictions in place. So I guess you could take different conclusions from that, but my take uh, would be that travel restrictions are not a strong factor. It's more about behavior within within the country. Eric, let, let's pivot back to the U.S. for a second, because I, I definitely want to get your perspective on what has become a, a, at least a, a bit controversial. There was a bit of confusion about the third booster, some debate as to whether it was even necessary in the broader context of, of herd protection, and the fact that there's a much lower chance that vaccinated people get really sick from COVID. So is this booster shot, first simple question, is the booster shot that is being discussed the exact same shot as the first and second Pfizer dose? Yes. Yeah. Simple answer. It's, it's the exact same. And just for your information, Pfizer went in that direct direction because they saw that it induced a high antibody response, even with the Delta variant. So they felt there was no need to make a Delta specific vaccine because the original worked just as well. And there's widespread agreement for that strategy. So we've had a lot of news in the U.S. about um, requiring COVID shots uh, to work, uh, governmental employees, other civil servants, first responders, I'm sitting here in New York, and healthcare workers are required as of today, I think, to be vaccinated. Do you think these workers will be required to get the booster? I, I don't think so. You know, the, the, you mentioned the booster data being somewhat controversial. You know, from listening to the experts, it sounds like protection does wane um, from the data in Israel from somewhere in the 90s um, in terms of protection from uh, infections to somewhere in the 80s. But it remains very high for severe disease. And the CDC, uh, they, they had a panel which strongly re- recommended the, the booster for over 65-year-olds. But when it came to questions of below 65, the panel was less less strong on its recommendation. And for under 65-year-olds for with high-risk jobs, the panel did not recommend it, but the CDC director overruled them and recommended it in that setting. So because it's controversial, I, I don't, I guess I would be surprised if the government would enforce um, in that setting, but I I was also fairly surprised that they enforced the general vaccine mandate, so I wouldn't rule it out. So, Eric, you've talked a lot about sort of how we got where we are, a little bit about where we're going based on some some trends. It's interesting that some countries are really ready to call call it on COVID and transition from this being a pandemic to more of an endemic disease. 
are we getting close to COVID being just like the, the seasonal flu and, and really being managed accordingly? I, I think it re- remains to be seen. So, you know, assuming that we can get the rates of severe da- uh, severe disease down to very low levels or, or something like the flu, that's the first uh, threshold that we would need to meet. And then the next is, you know, how people will think about their risk of symptomatic infection and severe disease. And so, you know, there there are vaccinated people who are in the hospital. So it's still a little bit of um, of a roulette type of dynamic where you have to think to yourself that there is some risk despite being vaccinated. And then there's the thought of, okay, I'm okay with the hospital risk because it's low, but I would still prefer not to have a symptomatic case because those can put you on the, the injured list, so to speak, for a period of time. And, and maybe there are long-term effects. We're, we're not totally sure uh, how how common that is. And, and so we, we have to go back to the case numbers um, and getting those case numbers down. And so, you know, th- there's the venues where people are mostly comfortable today. Think about outdoor stadiums and airplanes where you're seeing uh, you know, people be pretty comfortable going to, to those settings. And then the, there's the venues with close interaction, the indoor dining, the office space, indoor concerts and sports and just before the Delta wave um, in the summer, the U.S. was down to about 40 cases per million per day, and the indoor activity was starting to open up. And I think we probably need to be a little bit below that level for a majority of people to be comfortable with indoor activity across the country. So maybe think below 20. And you know, as a, as a base case, I don't think we'll be that low going into the beginning of next year. It's possible we get there in the spring. And by then, maybe we could be at maybe 90% plus of the U.S. with some form of protection. And that's when I think people could think of it more like the flu, where they balance their personal activity with the known risks. You know, and, th- and those are just scenarios. Those are not predictions. Well, that would be great to get to 90% uh, in, in several months. Um, Eric, this is an unfair question, but it's the last question. What keeps you up at night right now? What's the tail risk that you see in all of this? Is it a new variant? Is it... Just more hotspots? Yeah, good question. Um, you know, throughout the pandemic, I would say I've been getting questions on different mutational variants and, and what do I think of this or that variant? And I almost always say you never know until you see how it spreads because it's too unpredictable. You can't know the fitness uh, uh, of a strain based on its mutations. But I always say that if we see a strain come out of a high vaccination region, then I would worry. So if we hear about, let's say, a, an Iceland strain or a Vermont strain, you know, that means that the variant is likely escaping the vaccine in order to be spreading in that population. So you know, you know, we would likely be able to create new vaccines directed at that variant, but it would take likely more than six months. And we won't know for sure how protective it would be until we do those studies. So there would be a period of, of, of worry and concern. And, and just uh, thinking about the world having to, to almost start over would, would be pretty dreadful. So I that's the most realistic tail risk that I can think of. Eric, well, certainly that would be quite, quite a setback. Um, we're going to leave it at that. I want to thank you so much uh, for joining us and sharing your insights on this important topic. I'm glad I can be helpful. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Subscribe to Market Currents from your favorite podcast app to be automatically notified of new episodes. 
This audio podcast is being provided for informational and educational purposes only and is not meant to be taken as investment advice or a recommendation of any specific investment product or strategy. The information does not take your financial situation, investment objective, or risk tolerance into consideration. Listeners, including professionals, should under no circumstances rely upon this information as a substitute for their own research or for obtaining specific legal, investment, accounting, or tax advice from their own counsel.